Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapters 9 through 12 of Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Chapter 9 I wanted to go and look at a place right about the middle of the island that I'd found when I was exploring. So we started and soon got to it, because the island was only three miles long and a quarter of a mile wide. This place was a tolerable long steep hill or ridge about 40 feet high. We had a rough time getting to the top. The sides were so steep and the bushes so thick. We tramped and clumb around all over it, and by and by found a good big cavern in the rock, most up to the top on the side, towards Illinois. The cavern was as big as two or three rooms bunched together, and Jim could stand up straight in it. It was cool in there. Jim was for putting our traps in there right away, but I said we didn't want to be climbing up and down there all the time. Jim said if we had the canoe hidden a good place and had all the traps in the cavern, we could rush there if anybody was to come to the island, and they would never find us without dogs. And besides, he said them little birds had said it was going to rain, and did I want the things to get wet? So we went back and got the canoe and paddled up abreast the cavern and lugged all the traps up there. Then we hunted up a place close by to hide the canoe in, amongst the thick willows. We took some fish off the lines and set them again, and began to get ready for dinner. The door of the cavern was big enough to roll a hog's head in, and on one side of the door the floor stuck out a little bit, and was flat, and a good place to build a fire on. So we built it there, and cooked dinner. We spread the blankets inside for a carpet, and ate our dinner in there. We put all the other things handy at the back of the cavern. Pretty soon it darkened up and begun to thunder and lightning, so the birds was right about it. Directly it begun to rain, and it rained like all fury, too, and I never seed the wind blow so. It was one of those regular summer storms. It would get so dark that it looked all blue-black outside, and lovely, and the rain would thrash along by so thick that the trees off a little ways looked dim and spider-webby and here would come a blast of wind that would bend the trees down and turn up the pale underside of the leaves. And then a perfect ripper of a gust would follow along and set the branches to tossing their arms as if they was just wild. And next, when it was just about the bluest and blackest, it was as bright as glory, and you'd have a little glimpse of treetops a-plunging about way off yonder in the storm, hundreds of yards further than you could see before dark as sin again in a second, and now you'd hear the thunder let go with an awful crash, and then go rumbling, grumbling, tumbling down the sky towards the other side of the world, like rolling empty barrels downstairs, where it's long stairs, and they bounce a good deal, you know? Jim, this is nice, I says. I wouldn't want to be nowhere else but here. Pass me along another hunk of fish and some hot cornbread. "'Well, you wouldn't have been here if it hadn't been for Jim. "'You'd have been down there in the woods without any dinner. "'You'd getting most drowned, too. "'That you would, honey. "'Chicken's nose when it's going to rain, "'and so did the birds, child.' "'The river went on raising and raising for ten or twelve days, "'till at last it was over the banks. "'The water was three or four feet deep on the island in the low places "'and on the Illinois bottom. "'On that side it was a good many miles wide.' but on the Missouri side it was the same old distance across, a half a mile, because the Missouri shore was just a wall of high bluffs. 
Daytimes we paddled all over the island in the canoe. It was mighty cool and shady in the deep woods, even if the sun was blazing outside. We went winding in and out amongst the trees, and sometimes the vines hung so thick we had to back away and go some other way. Well, on every old broken-down tree you could see rabbits and snakes and such, and when the island had been overflowed a day or two, they got so tame on account of being hungry that you could paddle right up and put your hand on them if you wanted to, but not the snakes and the turtles. They would slide off in the water. The ridge our cavern was in was full of them. We could have had pets enough if we'd have wanted them. One night we catched a little section of a lumber raft, nice pine planks. It was 12 foot wide and about 15 or 16 feet long, and the top stood above water 6 or 7 inches, a solid level floor. We could see saw logs go by in the daylight sometimes, but we let them go. We didn't show ourselves in daylight. Another night when we was up at the head of the island, just before daylight, here comes a frame house down on the west side. She was a two-story and tilted over considerable. We paddled out and got aboard. We clumb in at an upstairs window, but it was too dark to see yet, so we made the canoe fast and set in her to wait for daylight. The light begun to come before we got to the foot of the island. Then we looked in at the window. We could make out a bed and a table and two old chairs and lots of things around about on the floor. And there was clothes hanging against the wall. So there was something laying on the floor in the far corner that looked like a man. So Jim says, Hello, you. But it didn't budge. So I hollered again. And then Jim says, The man ain't asleep. He's dead. You hold still. I'll go in and see. He went and bent down and looked and says, It's a dead man. Yes, indeedy. Naked, too. He'd been shot in the back. I reckon he's been dead two or three days. Come in, Huck, but don't look at his face. It's too ghastly. I didn't look at him at all. Jim throwed some old rags over him, but he needn't done it. I didn't want to see him. There was heaps of old greasy cards scattered around over the floor, and old whiskey bottles, and a couple of masks made out of black cloth, and all over the walls was an ignorantest kind of words and pictures made with charcoal. There was two old dirty calico dresses, and a sunbonnet, and some women's underclothes hanging against the wall, and some men's clothing, too. We put the lot into the canoe. It might come good. There was a boy's old speckled straw hat on the floor. I took that, too and there was a bottle that had had milk in it, and it had a rag stopper for a baby to suck. We would have took the bottle, but it was broke. There was a seedy old chest and an old hair trunk with hinges broke. They stood open, but there weren't nothing left in them that was any account. The way things were scattered about, we reckoned the people left in a hurry, and weren't fixed so as to carry off most of their stuff. We got an old tin lantern and a butcher knife without any handle and a brand new Barlow knife worth two bits in any store, and a lot of tallow candles, and a tin candlestick, and a gourd, and a tin cup, and a ratty old bed quilt off the bed, and a reticule with needles and pins and beeswax and buttons and thread and all such truck in it, and a hatchet and some nails, and a fish line as thick as my little finger with some monstrous hooks on it, and a roll of buckskin, and a leather dog collar, and a horseshoe, and some vials of medicine that didn't have no label on them. 
and just as we was leaving, I found a tolerable good curry comb, and Jim, he found a ratty old fiddle bow and a wooden leg. The straps was broke off it, but barring that, it was a good enough leg, though it was too long for me and not long enough for Jim, and we couldn't find the other one, though we hunted all around. And so, take it all around, we made a good haul. When we was ready to shove off, we was a quarter of a mile below the island, and it was a pretty broad day, so I made Jim lay down in the canoe and cover up with the quilt, because if he'd have set up, people could tell he was a black guy a good ways off. I paddled over to the Illinois shore and drifted down most half a mile doing it. I crept up the dead water under the bank and had no accidents and didn't see nobody. We got home, all safe. Chapter 10 After breakfast, I wanted to talk about the dead man and guess out how he came to be killed, but Jim didn't want to. He said it would fetch bad luck, and besides, he said, he might come and haunt us. He said a man that weren't buried was more likely to go a-haunting around than one that was planted and comfortable. That sounded pretty reasonable, so I didn't say no more, but I couldn't keep from studying over it and wishing I knowed who'd shot the man and what they'd done it for. We rummaged the clothes we'd got and found eight dollars in silver sewed up in the lining of an old blanket overcoat. Jim said he reckoned the people in that house stole the coat, because if they'd have knowed the money was there, they wouldn't have left it. I said I reckoned they killed him too, but Jim didn't want to talk about that. I says, Now you think it's bad luck, but what did you say when I fetched in the snakeskin that I found on top of the ridge day before yesterday? You said it was the worst bad luck in the world to touch a snakeskin with my hands. Well, here's your bad luck. We've raked in all this truck and eight dollars besides. I wish we could have some bad luck like this every day, Jim. Never you mind, honey. Never you mind. Don't you get too pert. Mind, I tell you, it's a coming. It did come, too. It was a Tuesday that we had that talk. Well, after dinner Friday, we was laying around in the grass at the upper end of the ridge and got out of tobacco. I went to the cavern to get some and found a rattlesnake in there. I killed him and curled him up on the foot of Jim's blanket, ever so natural, thinking there'd be some fun when Jim found him there. Well, by night I forgot all about that snake, and when Jim flung himself down on the blanket, while I struck a light, the snake's mate was there, and bit him. He jumped up yelling, and the first thing the light showed was the varmint curled up and ready for another spring. I laid him out in a second with a stick, and Jim grabbed Pap's whiskey jug and begun to pour it down. He was barefooted, and the snake bit him right on the heel. That all comes of my being such a fool as to not remember that wherever you leave a dead snake, its mate always comes there and curls around it. Jim told me to chop off the snake's head, throw it away, and then skin the body and roast a piece of it. I'd done it, and he ate it and said it would help cure him. He made me take off the rattles and tie them around his wrist, too. He said that that would help. Then I slid out quiet and throwed the snakes clear away amongst the bushes, for I weren't going to let Jim find out it was all my fault. Not if I could help it. Jim sucked and sucked at the jug, and now and then he got out of his head and pitched around and yelled. But every time he come to himself, he went sucking at that jug again. His foot swelled up pretty big, and so did his leg. But by and by, the drunk begun to come, 
"'and so I judged he was all right, "'but I'd rather been bit with a snake than Pap's whiskey. "'Jim was laid up for four days and nights. "'Then the swelling was all gone, and he was around again. "'I made up my mind I wouldn't ever take a hold of a snake skin again with my hands, "'now that I seen what come of it. "'Jim said he reckoned I'd believe him next time. "'And he said that handling a snake skin was such awful bad luck "'that maybe we hadn't got to the end of it yet.' He said he'd rather see the new moon over his left shoulder as much as a thousand times than take up a snakeskin in his hand. Well, I was getting to feel that way myself, though I've always reckoned that looking at a new moon over your left shoulder is one of the carelessest and foolishest things a body can do. Old Hank Bunker done it once and bragged about it, and in less than two years he got drunk and fell off the shot tower and spread himself out so that he was just a kind of a layer, as you might say and they slid him edgewise between two barn doors for a coffin and buried him so, so they say, but I didn't see it. Pap told me. But anyway, it all come of looking at the moon that way, like a fool. Well, the days went along, and the river went down between its banks again, and about the first thing we done was to bait one of the big hooks with a skinned rabbit and set it and catch a catfish that was as big as a man, being six foot two inches long, "'and weighed over two hundred pounds. "'We couldn't handle him, of course. "'He would have flung us into Illinois. "'We just sat there and watched him rip and tear around till he drowned. "'We found a brass button in his stomach and a round ball "'and lots of rubbish. "'We split the ball open with the hatchet, "'and there was a spool in it. "'Jim said he'd had it there a long time "'to coat it over so and make a ball of it. "'It was as big a fish as was ever catched in the Mississippi, I reckon.' Jim said he hadn't ever seen a bigger one. He would have been worth a good deal over at the village. They peddle out such a fish as that by the pound in the market house there. Everybody buys some of them. His meat's as white as snow and makes a good fry. Next morning, I said it was getting slow and dull, and I wanted to get a stirring up some way. I said I reckon I'd slip over to the river and find out what was going on. Jim liked that notion, but he said I must go in the dark and look sharp. Then he studied it over and said, Couldn't I put on some of them old things and maybe dress up like a girl? That was a good notion, too. So we shortened up one of the calico gowns and I turned up my trouser legs to my knees and got into it. Jim hitched it behind with the hooks and it was a fair fit. I put the sunbonnet on and tied it under my chin and then for a body to look in and see my face was like looking down the joint of a stovepipe. Jim said nobody had know me, even in the daytime, hardly. I practiced around all day to get the hang of things, and by and by I could do pretty well in them. Only Jim said I didn't walk like a girl, and he said I must quit pulling up my gown to get at my breeches pocket. I took notice and done better. I started up the Illinois shore in the canoe just after dark. I started across to the town from a little below the ferry landing, and the drift of the current fetched me at the bottom of the town. I tied up and started along the bank. There was a light burning in a little shanty that hadn't been lived in for a long time, and I wondered who took up quarters there. I slipped up and peeped in at the window. There was a woman about forty year old in there knitting by a candle that was on a pine table. I didn't know her face. She was a stranger, for you couldn't start a face in that town that I didn't know. Now this was lucky, because I was weakening. I was afraid I'd come, people might know my voice, 
and find me out. But if this woman had been in such a little town two days, she could tell me all I wanted to know. So I knocked at the door and made up my mind I wouldn't forget I was a girl. Chapter 11 Come in, says the woman. And I did. She says, Take a cheer. I had done it. She looked me all over with the little shiny eyes and says, What might your name be? Sarah Williams. Whereabouts do you live? In this neighborhood? Nome in Hookerville, seven mile below. I walked all the way, and I'm all tired out. Hungry, too, I reckon. I'll find you something. Noam, I ain't hungry. I was so hungry, I had to stop two miles below here at a farm, so I ain't hungry no more. It's what makes me so late. My mother's down sick and out of money and everything, and I come to tell my Uncle Abner Moore. He lives at the upper end of town, she says. I ain't ever been here before. Do you know him? No, but I don't know everybody yet. I haven't lived here quite two weeks. It's a considerable ways to the upper end of town. You better stay here all night. Take off your bonnet. No, I says. I'll rest a while, I reckon, and then go on. I ain't afeard of the dark. She said she wouldn't let me go by myself, but her husband would be in by and by, maybe in an hour and a half, and she'd send him along with me. Then she got to talking about her husband, and about her relations up the river, and her relations down the river, and about how much better off they used to be, and how they didn't know but they'd made a mistake coming to our town instead of letting well enough alone, and so on and so on, till I was afeard I'd made a mistake coming to her to find out what was going on in the town. But by and by, she dropped on to Pap and the murder, and then I was pretty willing to let her clatter right along. She told about me and Tom Sawyer finding the $6,000, only she had it at ten, and all about Pap and what a hard lot he was, and what a hard lot I was and at last she got down to where I was murdered. I says, Who done it? We've heard considerable about these gangs on down in Hookerville, but we don't know who twas that killed Huck Finn. Well, I reckon there's a right smart chance of people here that'd like to know who killed him. And there's a reward for Finn's pap, too. No, is that so? Most everybody thought it at first, she said. He'll never know how nigh he come to getting lynched. But before night they changed around and judged it was done by a runaway slave named Jim. Why, why he? I stopped. I reckon I better keep still. She run on and never noticed I'd put in at all. Yeah, that slave run off the very night Huck Finn was killed. So there's a reward out for him. Three hundred dollars. And there's a reward out for old Finn, too. Two hundred dollars. You see, he come to town the morning after the murder and told about it and was out with them on the ferryboat hunt and right away after he up and left. Before night, they wanted to lynch him, but he was gone, you see. Well, next day, they found out the slave was gone. They found out he hadn't been seen since 10 o'clock the night murder was done. So then they put it on him, you see, and while they was full of it, next day, back comes old Finn and went boo-hooing to Judge Thatcher to get money to hunt for the slave all over Illinois with. The judge gave him some, and that evening he got drunk and was around till after midnight with a couple of mighty hard-looking strangers and then went off with them. Well, he ain't come back since, and they ain't looking for him back till this thing blows over a little, 
for people thinks now that he killed his boy and fixed things so folks would think robbers done it, and then he'd get Huck's money without having to bother a long time with a lawsuit. People do say he weren't any too good to do it. Oh, he's sly, I reckon. If he don't come back for a year, he'll be all right. You can't prove anything on him, you know. Everything will be quieted down then, and he'll walk in Huck's money as easy as nothing. Yes, I reckon so. I don't see nothing in the way of it. Has everybody quit thinking the slave done it? Oh, no, not everybody. A good many thinks he's done it. But they'll get that slave pretty soon now, and maybe they can scare it out of him. Why, are they after him yet? Well, you're innocent, ain't you? Does three hundred dollars lay around every day for people to pick up? Some folks think the slave ain't far from here. I'm one of them. But I ain't talked it around. A few days ago, I was talking with an old couple that lives next door in the log shanty, and they happened to say hardly anybody ever goes to that island over yonder that they call Jackson's Island. Don't anybody live there? says I. No, nobody. I didn't say any more, but I'd done some thinking. I was pretty near certain I'd seen smoke over there, about the head of the island, a day or two before that. So I says to myself, like as not, that slave's hiding over there. Anyway, says I, it's worth the trouble to give the place a hunt. I ain't seen any smoke since, so I reckon maybe he's gone, if it was him. But my husband's going over to sea, him and another man. He was gone up the river, but he's got back today, and I told him as soon as he got here two hours ago. I had got so uneasy, I couldn't sit still. I had to do something with my hands, so I took up a needle off the table and went to threading it. My hands shook, and I was making a bad job of it. When the woman stopped talking, I looked up, and she was looking at me pretty curious and smiling a little. I put down the needle and thread and let on to be interested. And I was, too, and says, $300 is a power of money. I wish my mother could get it. Is your husband going over there tonight? Oh, yes, he went uptown with the man I was telling you of to get a boat and see if they could borrow another gun. They'll go over after midnight. Couldn't they see better if they was to wait till daytime? Yes, and couldn't the slave see better, too? After midnight, he'll likely be asleep, and they can slip around through the woods and hunt up his campfire all the better for the dark if he's got one. I didn't think of that. The woman kept looking at me pretty curious, and I didn't feel a bit comfortable. Pretty soon she says, What did you say your name was, honey? Mary Williams. Somehow it didn't seem to me that I'd said it was Mary before, so I didn't look up. Seemed to me I said it was Sarah. So I felt sort of cornered, and was afeard maybe I was looking at too. I wished the woman would say something more. The longer she sat still, the uneasier I was. But now, she says, Honey, I thought you said it was Sarah when you first came in. Oh, yes, am I did. Sarah Mary Williams. Sarah's my first name. Some calls me Sarah. Some calls me Mary. Oh, that's the way of it. Yes, am I was feeling better then, but I wished I was out of there anyway. I couldn't look up yet. Well, the woman fell to talking about how hard times was and how poor they had to live and how the rats was as free as if they owned the place, and so forth, and so on. And then I got easy again. She was right about the rats, 
"'you'd see one stick his nose out of a hole in the corner every little while. "'She said she had to have things handy to throw at them when she was alone, "'or they wouldn't give her no peace. "'She showed me a bar of lead twisted up into a knot "'and said she was a good shot with it generally, "'but she'd wrenched her arm a day or two ago "'and didn't know whether she could throw true now. "'But she watched for a chance "'and directly banged away at a rat, "'but she missed him wide and said, "'Ouch! It hurt her arm so.' Then she told me to try for the next one. I wanted to be getting away before the old man got back, but of course I didn't let on. I got the thing, and the first rat that showed his nose, I let drive, and if he'd have stayed where he was, he'd have been a tolerable sick rat. She said that was first rate, and she reckoned I would hive the next one. She went and got the lump of lead and fetched it back, and brought along a hanky yarn which she wanted me to help her with. I held up my two hands, "'and she put the hank over them "'and went on talking about her and her husband's matters. "'But she broke off to say, "'Keep your eye on the rats. "'You better have that lead in your lap handy.' "'So she dropped the lump into my lap just at that moment, "'and I clapped my legs together on it, "'and she went on talking. "'But only about a minute. "'Then she took off the hank and looked me straight in the face, "'and very pleasant, and says, "'Come now, what's your real name?' "'What, Mum?' "'What's your real name? Is it Bill, or Tom, or Bob? Or what is it?' "'I reckon I shook like a leaf, and I didn't know hardly what to do. "'But I says, "'Please to don't poke fun at a poor girl like me, Mum. "'If I'm in the way here, I'll—' "'No, you won't. Sit down and stay where you are. "'I ain't gonna hurt you, and I ain't gonna tell on you nother. "'You just tell me your secret, and trust me. "'I'll keep it, and what's more, I'll help you.' "'Sold my old man if you want him to. "'You see, you're a runway prentice, that's all. "'It ain't anything. "'There ain't no harm in it. "'You've been treated bad, "'and you made up your mind to cut. "'Bless you, child. "'I wouldn't tell on you. "'Tell me all about it now. "'That's a good boy.' "'So I said it wouldn't be no use to play it any longer, "'and I would just make a clean breast and tell her everything, "'but she mustn't go back on her promise.' Then I told her my father and mother was dead, and the law had bound me out to a mean old farmer in the country thirty miles back from the river, and he treated me so bad I couldn't stand it no longer. He went away to be gone a couple days, so I took my chance and stole some of his daughter's old clothes and cleared out of there, and I'd been three nights coming to thirty miles. I traveled nights and hid daytimes and slept, and the bag of bread and meat I carried from home lasted me all the way, and I had a plenty. I said I believed my Uncle Abner Moore would take care of me, and so that was why I struck out for this town of Goshen. Goshen, child? This ain't Goshen. This is St. Petersburg. Goshen's ten miles further up the river. Who told you this was Goshen? Why, a man I met at daybreak this morning, just as I was going to turn into the woods for my regular sleep. He told me when the roads forked, I must take the right hand, and five mile would fetch me to Goshen. He must have been drunk. He told you just exactly wrong. Well, he did act like he was drunk, but it ain't no matter now. I gotta be moving along. I'll fetch Goshen before daylight. Hold on a minute. I'll put you up a snack to eat. You might want it. So she put me up a snack and says, Say, when a cow's laying down, which end of her gets up first? Answer up prompt now. Don't stop to study over it. 
Which end gets up first? The hind end, Mum. Well, then, a horse? The forward end, Mum. Which side of a tree does the moss grow on? North side. If fifteen cows is browsing on a hillside, how many of them each with their heads pointed in the same direction? The whole fifteen, Mum. Well, I reckon you have lived in the country. I thought maybe you was trying to hocus me again. Now, what's your real name? George Peters, Mum. Well, try to remember it, George. Don't forget and tell me it's Alexander before you go, and then get out by saying it's George Alexander when I catch you. And don't go about women in that old calico. You do a girl terrible poor. But you might fool men, maybe. Bless you, child. When you set out to thread a needle, don't hold the thread still and fetch the needle up to it. Hold the needle still and poke the thread at it. That's the way a woman most always does. But a man always does it the other way. And when you throw at a rat or anything, hit yourself up a tiptoe and fetch your hand up over your head as awkward as you can and miss your rat by about six feet. Throw stiff arm from the shoulder. Like there was a pivot there for it to turn on, like a girl. Not from the wrist and elbow, with your arm out to one side like a boy. And mind you, when a girl tries to catch anything in her lap, she throws her knees apart. She don't clap them together. The way you did when you caught that lump of lead. Why, I spotted you for a boy when you was threading the needle. And I contrived the other things just to make certain. Now trot along to your uncle. Sarah Mary Williams George Alexander Peters. And if you get into trouble, you send word to Mrs. Judith Loftus, which is me. And I'll do what I can to get you out of it. Keep the river road all the way. And next time you tramp, take shoes and socks with you. The river road's a rocky one. And your feet will be in a condition when you get to Goshen, I reckon. I went up the bank about fifty yards, then I doubled on my tracks and slipped back to where my canoe was, a good piece below the house. I jumped in and was off in a hurry. I went upstream far enough to make the head of the island, then started across. I took off the sunbonnet, for I didn't want no blinders on then. When I was about the middle, I heard the clock begin to strike, so I stops and listens. The sound come faint over the water, but clear, eleven. When I struck the head of the island, I never waited to blow, though I was most winded, but I shoved right into the timber where my old camp used to be and started a good fire there on a high and dry spot. Then I jumped in the canoe and dug out for our place, a mile and a half below, as hard as I could go. I landed and slopped through the timber and up the ridge and into the cavern. There Jim laid, sound asleep on the ground. I roused him out and says, Get up and hump yourself, Jim. They ain't a minute to lose. They're after us. Jim never asked no questions. He never said a word. But the way he worked for the next half an hour showed about how much he was scared. By that time, everything we had in the world was on our raft, and she was ready to be shoved out from the willow cove where she was hid. We put out the campfire at the cavern the first thing, It didn't show a candle outside after that. I took the canoe out from the shore a little piece and took a look. But if there was a boat around, I couldn't see it, for stars and shadows ain't good to see by. Then we got out the raft and slipped along down in the shade, past the foot of the island, dead still, never saying a word. Chapter 12 
It must have been close on to one o'clock when we got below the island at last, and the raft did seem to go mighty slow. If a boat was to come along, we was going to take to the canoe and break for the Illinois shore. And it was well a boat didn't come, for we hadn't ever thought to put the gun in the canoe, or a fishing line, or anything to eat. We was in rather too much of a sweat to think of so many things. It wasn't good judgment to put everything on the raft. If the men went to the island, I just expect they found the campfire I built, and watched it all night for Jim to come. Anyways, they stayed away from us, and if my building the fire never fooled them, it weren't no fault of mine. I played it as low down on them as I could. When the first streak of day began to show, we tied up to a towhead on a big bend in the Illinois side, and hacked off cottonwood branches with the hatchet, and covered up the raft with them, so she looked like there'd been a cave-in at the bank there. A towhead is a sandbar that has cottonwoods on it as thick as harrow teeth. We had mountains on the Missouri shore, and heavy timber on the Illinois side, and the channel was down the Missouri shore at that place, so we weren't afraid of anybody running across us. We laid there all day, and watched the rafts and steamboats spin down the Missouri shore, and upbound steamboats fight the big river in the middle. I told Jim all about the time I had jabbering with that woman, and Jim said she was a smart one. And if she was to start after us herself, she wouldn't sit down and watch a campfire. No, sir. She'd fetch a dog. Well, then, I said, why couldn't she tell her husband to fetch a dog? Jim said he bet she did think of it by the time the men was ready to start, and he believed they must have gone uptown to get a dog, and so they lost all that time, or else we wouldn't be here on a towhead sixteen or seventeen miles below the village. No, indeedy, we would be in that same old town again. So I said I didn't care what was the reason they didn't get us, as long as they didn't. When it was beginning to come on dark, we poked our heads out of the cottonwood thicket and looked up and down and across, nothing in sight. So Jim took up some of the top blanks of the raft and built a snug wigwam to get under in blazing weather and rainy and to keep things dry. Jim made a floor for the wigwam and raised it a foot or more above the level of the raft, so now the blankets and all the traps was out of reach of steamboat waves. Right in the middle of the wigwam we made a layer of dirt about five or six inches deep with a frame around it for to hold to its place. This was to build a fire on in sloppy weather or chilly. The wigwam would keep it from being seen. We made an extra steering oar, too, because one of the others might get broke on a snag or something. We fixed up a short forked stick to hang the old lantern on, because we must always light the lantern whenever we see a steamboat coming downstream to keep from getting run over. But we wouldn't have to light it for upstream boats unless we see we was in what they call a crossing, for the river was pretty high yet, very low banks being still a little under water, so upbound boats didn't always run the channel, but hunted easy water. The second night we run between seven and eight hours, with a current that was making over four miles an hour. We catched fish and talked, and we took a swim now and then to keep off sleepiness. It was kind of solemn, drifting down the big, still river, laying on our backs, looking up at the stars. We didn't ever feel like talking loud, and it weren't often that we laughed. Only a little kind of low chuckle. We had mighty good weather as a general thing, and nothing ever happened to us at all, that night, nor the next, nor the next. Every night we passed towns, some of them away up on the black hillsides, 
"'nothing but just a shiny bed of lights. "'Not a house could you see. "'The fifth night we passed St. Louis, "'and it was like the whole world lit up. "'In St. Petersburg, "'they used to say there was twenty or thirty thousand people in St. Louis, "'but I never believed it "'till I seen that wonderful spread of lights at two o'clock "'that still night. "'There weren't a sound there. "'Everybody was asleep.' Every night now I used to slip ashore towards ten o'clock at some little village and buy ten or fifteen cents worth of meal or bacon or other stuff to eat. And sometimes I lifted a chicken that weren't roosting comfortable and took him along. Papa always said, take a chicken when you get a chance because if you don't want him yourself, you can easily find someone who does and a good deed ain't ever forgot. I never see Pap when he didn't want the chicken himself but that's what he used to say anyway. Mornings before daylight, I slipped into cornfields and borrowed a watermelon, or a mushmelon, or a pumpkin, or some new corn, or things of that kind. Papa always said it wasn't no harm to borrow things if you was meaning to pay them back sometime. But the widow said it weren't anything but a soft name for stealing, and no decent body would do it. Jim said he reckoned the widow was partly right, and Pap was partly right. So the best way would be for us to pick out two or three things from the list "'and say we wouldn't borrow them any more. "'Then he reckoned it wouldn't be no harm to borrow the others. "'So we talked it over all one night, "'drifting along down the river, "'trying to make up our minds whether to drop the watermelons, "'or the cantaloupes, or the mushmelons, or what. "'But towards daylight, we got it all settled satisfactory "'and concluded to drop crab apples and persimmons. "'We weren't feeling just right before that, "'but it was all comfortable now. "'I was glad the way it come out, too.' "'because crabapples ain't ever good, "'and the persimmons wouldn't be ripe for two or three months yet. "'We shot a waterfowl now and then "'that got up too early in the morning "'and didn't go to bed early enough in the evening. "'Take it all around. "'We live pretty high. "'The fifth night below St. Louis "'we had a big storm after midnight "'with a power of thunder and lightning, "'and the rain poured down in a solid sheet. "'We stayed in the wigwam "'and let the raft take care of itself. "'When the lightning glared out, we could see a big straight river ahead and high rocky bluffs on both sides. By and by, says I, Hello, Jim, looky yonder. It was a steamboat that had killed herself on a rock. We was drifting straight down for her. The lightning showed her very distinct. She was leaning over with part of her upper deck above water and you could see every little chimbly guy clean and clear and a chair by the big bell with an old slouch hat hanging on the back of it. "'when the flashes come. "'Well, it being away in the night and stormy "'and all so mysterious-like, "'I felt just the way any other boy would felt "'when I seen that wreck laying there "'so mournful and lonesome in the middle of the river. "'I wanted to get aboard of her "'and slink around a little and see what was there. "'So I says, "'Let's land on her, Jim.' "'But Jim was dead against it at first. "'He says, "'I don't want to go fooling along on no wreck. "'We's doing blame well.' "'We better let blame well alone, as the good book says. "'Like as not, there's a watchman on that wreck.' "'Watchman your grandmother,' I says. "'There ain't nothing to watch but the Texas and the pilot house. "'And do you reckon anybody's going to risk his life "'for a Texas and a pilot house such a night as this "'when it's likely to break up and wash off down the river any minute?' "'Jim couldn't say nothing to that, so he didn't try. "'And besides,' I says, we might borrow something worth having out of the captain's stateroom. Cigars, I'll bet you. 
and cost five cents apiece, solid cash. Steamboat captains is always rich and get sixty dollars a month, and they don't care a cent what the thing costs, you know, long as they want it. Stick a candle in your pocket. I can't rest, Jim, till we give her a rummaging. Do you reckon Tom Sawyer would ever go buy this thing? Not for pie, he wouldn't. He'd call it an adventure. That's what he'd call it. And he'd land on that wreck if it was his last act. And wouldn't he throw style into it? Wouldn't he spread himself? Nor nothing? Why, you'd think it was Christopher Columbus discovering kingdom come. I wish Tom Sawyer was here. Jim, he grumbled a little, but he gave in. He said we mustn't talk any more than we could help, and then talk mighty low. The lightning showed us the wreck again just in time, and we fetched the starboard derrick and made fast. The deck was high out here. We went sneaking down the slope of it to larboard. In the dark, towards the Texas, feeling our way slow with our feet, and spreading our hands out to fend off the guys, for it was so dark we couldn't see no sign of them. Pretty soon we struck the forward end of the skylight and clumb onto it, and the next step fetched us in front of the captain's door, which was open, and by Jiminy, away down through the Texas Hall, we see a light, and all in the same second we seemed to hear low voices in yonder. Jim whispered and said he was feeling powerful sick and told me to come along. I says, All right, and was going to start for the raft, but just then I heard a voice wail out and say, Oh, please don't, boys. I swear I won't ever tell. Another voice said pretty loud, It's a lie, Jim Turner. You acted this way before. You always want more than your share of the truck, and you've always got it, too, because you swore if you didn't, you'd tell. But this time, you said it just one time too many. You're the meanest, treacherous hound in this country. By this time, Jim was gone for the raft. I was just a boiling with curiosity, and I says to myself, Tom Sawyer wouldn't back out now, and so I won't either. I'm a-going to see what's going on here. So I dropped on my hands and knees in that little passage and crept aft in the dark till there weren't but one stateroom betwixt me and the cross hall of the Texas. Then in there I see a man stretched on the floor and tied hand and foot, and two men standing over him. And one of them had a dim lantern in his hand, and the other one had a pistol. This one kept pointing the pistol at the man's head on the floor and saying, I'd like to, and I order to, a mean skunk. The man on the floor would shrivel up and say, Oh, please don't, Bill. I ain't never going to tell. And every time he said that, the man with the lantern would laugh and say, Indeed you ain't. You ain't never said no truer thing than that. And once he said, Hear him beg. And yet if we hadn't got the best of him and tied him up, He'd have killed us both. And what for? Just for nothing. Just because we stood on our rights. That's what for. But I lay you ain't going to threaten nobody anymore, Jim Turner. Put up that pistol, Bill. And Bill says, I don't want to, Jake Packard. I'm for killing him. And didn't he kill old Hatfield just the same way? And don't he deserve it? But I don't want him killed. And I got my reasons for it. Bless your heart for them words, Jake Packard. I never forget you as long as I live, says the man on the floor, sort of blubbering now. Packard didn't take no notice of that, but hung up his lantern on a nail and started towards where I was there in the dark and motioned Bill to come. I crawfished as fast as I could about two yards 
but the boat slanted so that I couldn't make very good time. So to keep from getting run over and catched, I crawled into a stateroom on the upper side. The man came a-pawing along in the dark, and when Packard got to my stateroom, he says, Here, come in here. And in he come, and Bill after him. But before they got in, I was up in the upper berth, cornered, and sorry I come. Then they stood there with their hands on the ledge of the berth, and talked. I couldn't see them, but I could tell where they was by the whiskey they'd been having. I was glad I didn't drink whiskey, but it wouldn't make much difference anyway, because most of the time they couldn't have treated me because I didn't breathe. I was too scared. And besides, a body couldn't breathe and hear such talk. They talked low and earnest. Bill wanted to kill Turner. He says, He said he'll tell, and he will. If we was to give both our shares to him now, it wouldn't make no difference after the row and the way we've served him. Sure as you're born, he'll turn state's evidence. Now you hear me. I'm for putting him out of his troubles. So am I, says Packard, very quiet. Blame it, I sort of begun to think you wasn't. Well then, that's all right. Let's go and do it. Hold on a minute. I ain't had my say yet. You listen to me. Shooting's good, but there's quieter ways if the thing's got to be done. But what I say is this. It ain't good sense to go courting around after a halter. If you can get at what you're up to in some way that's just as good, and at the same time don't bring you into no risks. Ain't that so? Yeah, you bet it is. But how are you going to manage it this time? Well, my idea is this. We'll rustle around and gather up whatever pickings we've overlooked in the staterooms, and shove for shore, and hide the truck. Then we'll wait. Now I say it ain't going to be more than two hours before this wreck breaks up and washes off down the river. See? He'll be drowned, and won't have nobody to blame for it but his own self. I reckon that's a considerable sight better than killing him. I'm unfavorable to killing a man as long as you can get around it. It ain't good sense. It ain't good morals. Ain't I right? Yeah, I reckon you are. But suppose she don't break up and wash off. Well, we can wait the two hours anyway and see, can't we? All right, then. Come along. And so they started, and I lit out, all in a cold sweat, and scrambled forward. It was dark as pitch there, but I said, in a kind of a coarse whisper, Jim! And he answered up, right at my elbow, with a sort of moan, and I says, Quick, Jim, it ain't no time for fooling around and moaning. There's a gang of murderers in yonder, and if we don't hunt up their boat and set her drifting down the river so these fellows can't get away from the wreck, there's one of them going to be in a bad fix. But if we find their boat, we can put all of them in a bad fix, for the sheriff will get them. Quick, hurry. I'll hunt the larboard side. You start at the raft and... Oh, my lordy, raft! They ain't no raft no more. She done broke loose and gone. And here we is. Stay tuned next week for chapters 13 through 16. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. We're glad you're with us. Please stop at 1001 Stories for the Road and give us a review if you enjoy this episode or any, or any of the episodes in our archives. That's 1001 Stories for the Road. Thanks for being with us, and please do send us a review, either at Apple Podcast app or castbox.fm. Thanks a lot. We'll be back soon.